Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Remembering Romero, Amos the Prophet versus Amaziah the Priest. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 11th, 2010. This week's reading from Amos relates one of the most dramatic encounters in all of Scripture. If the dust-up occurred today, it would go viral on YouTube. The actors in the drama come right from central casting. And the script should come with warning labels like not recommended for children or side effects include severe political and spiritual discomfort. Amos wrote 2,800 years ago, but his prophecy reads like a Twitter alert. He's a good example of how in the Bible, prophecy is more about foretelling the truth about the present than foretelling events in the future. Amos lived under the renowned King Jeroboam II, who reigned for 41 years and forged a kingdom characterized by territorial expansion, aggressive militarism, in unprecedented economic prosperity. Many people back then interpreted their fine times as evidence of God's special favor. Amos did acknowledge that people were intensely and sincerely religious, but he saw things differently. Theirs was a privatized religion that ignored the poor, the widow, the alien, and the orphan. It was a type of religion that degraded authentic faith to cultural ritual. And worst of all, Israel's religious leaders sanctioned the political and economic status quo that exploited the weak. These priests pimped religion for Jeroboam's empire. Enter Amos. He preached from the pessimistic and unpatriotic fringe. He was blue-collar rather than blue-blooded. He admits that he was neither a prophet nor even the son of a prophet in the professional sense of the term. Rather, he was a shepherd, a farmer, and a tender of fig trees, a small-town boy who grew up in Tekoa, about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem, and 5 miles south of Bethlehem. The cultured elites of his day despised Amos as a redneck. He was also an unwelcome outsider. Born in the southern kingdom of Judah, God called Amos to thunder a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel. That was a difficult divine call, but that's what this rustic prophet did. His fiery rhetoric opposed the powers of his day. With graphic details that almost make you wince, Amos describes how the rich crush the poor. He singled out the affluent with their expensive lotions, elaborate music, and vacation homes with beds of inlaid ivory. He describes sexual debauchery where a man and his son abused the same woman and lamented a corrupt legal system that sold justice to the highest bidder. He named predatory lenders who exploited vulnerable families and religious leaders who aided and abetted all of this. 
to the priests who defended, legitimized, and justified Jeroboam's corrupt reign, Amos delivered an uncompromising word of warning. We read in Amos chapter 7 how Amaziah the priest warned Jeroboam the king that Amos's preaching was unpatriotic and conspiracial. He then tried to run him out of town. In chapter 7 verse 12 we read, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Amaziah then said something that reveals just how completely he had identified religious faith with establishment power. It ought to send a chill up the spine of every religious leader who's ever considered sucking up to power. Amos 7.13 says, Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. So with those words, the religious justification of political empire is complete, and faith is reduced to patriotic cheerleading. But Amos wouldn't be bullied. He had a word of his own for every priest who prostituted religion for empire. Amos 7.17 says, Your wife will become a whore. Your kids will be violently murdered. Enemies will carve up the country. You'll die far from home. And pagan Assyria will devour the political and economic empire you've tried to sanction in God's name. Despite the church's checkered history in relationship to power, privilege, and wealth, many saints have followed in the footsteps of Amos. This last spring, many Christians commemorated the 30th anniversary of the martyrdom of Oscar Romero, 1917-1980, the Archbishop of San Salvador. Romero was an unlikely martyr. He had studied in Rome, distanced himself from leftist radicals and their violence, and earned a reputation as a cautious conservative. The Salvadoran government was quite happy with his ordination as archbishop in 1977, whereas the Marxist priests who ministered among the campesinos were dismayed. But then Romero did an about-face. Only a few weeks after his appointment as Archbishop, Romero's close friend and Jesuit priest Rutilio Grande was slaughtered by machine gun because of his ministry among the campesinos. The murder marked a decisive turning point. When I looked at Rutilio lying there dead, said Romero, I thought, if they have killed him for doing what he did, then I too have to walk the same path. Romero refused to meet with any government officials until they did an investigation. But that never happened, and so in his three years as archbishop, Romero never attended a single state function. The following week, Romero canceled local services and held one single mass in San Salvador to honor Grande. It was attended by 150 priests and 100,000 parishioners. For the next three years, he spoke forcibly against the atrocities of the Salvadoran government and its paramilitary guerrillas, 
the terror, torture, death squads, rape, and human rights abuses. Every week in his sermons, listened to on the radio by peasants all over the country, Romero detailed the horrors in an understated but explicit manner. He wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter, and here I quote, You say that you are a Christian. If you are really a Christian, please stop sending military aid to the military here, because they use it only to kill my people. President Carter ignored the request. Oscar Romero became the most outspoken critic of the government and a passionate defender of the dispossessed. His first death threat came from none other than President Arturo Molina, who warned him that priestly garments were not bulletproof. In his very last sermon on Sunday, March 23rd, Romero explained his Amos-like vocation. I have no ambition of power, and because of that I freely tell those in power what is good and what is bad. And I do the same thing with any political group. It is my duty. He continued on. I want to make a special appeal to soldiers, National Guardsmen, and policemen. Each of you is one of us. The peasants you kill are your own brothers and sisters. When you hear a man telling you to kill, remember God's words, Thou shalt not kill. No soldier is obliged to obey a law contrary to the law of God. In the name of God, in the name of our tormented people, I beseech you, I implore you, in the name of God, I command you, to stop the repression. The next evening, at about 6.30 p.m., a gunman shot Romero as he celebrated the Mass at a small chapel in the Divine Providence Hospital where he lived. Later investigations established that the assassination was contracted by the government military. Just one week later, 250,000 people attended Romero's funeral mass. And then 30 years later, on the anniversary of his death, March 24, 2010, Salvadoran President Mauricio Funes officially apologized on behalf of the government for Romero's assassination. A modern-day Amos Today, Romero is honored as one of the four 20th century martyrs in Westminster Abbey, London. And for further reflection, consider the words from the psalm this week, Psalm 82. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Remembering Romero, Amos the prophet, and Amaziah the priest. For books this week, we once again go back to the patristic age, in a book by Evagrius of Ponticus, the title is The Practicos 
in Chapters on Prayer, translated and with an introduction and notes by John Uday Bamberger, Kalamazoo Cistercian Publications, 1972, and then again 1981. The book is only 96 pages. In his Lausiac History from about the year 400, Palladius writes how Evagrius of Pontus, who died in 399, quote, was honored, honored as he was by the entire city, was ensnared in the contemplation of desire for a woman, as he later told us when he was freed of the thought. The woman also loved him in return. She was of the highest social class. So Evagrius, with a fear of God and a respect for his own conscience, perceived plainly the magnitude of the disgrace and the delight which heretics would take in his transgression. And he prayed humbly to God to put some impediment in his path. He wished to break off with the woman, who by now was eager and frantic. But he could not do so, so caught up was he in the bonds of concupiscence. Evagrius himself tells us that he had a vision. And so the very next day he boarded a ship for Jerusalem, where he met the famous Melania in the hospice that she founded on the Mount of Olives. Melania was one of the wealthiest women of her time and deeply committed to the monastic cause. Palladius writes how Evagrius confessed the whole love story to Melania, who advised Evagrius to flee to the desert. So he did just that. And so one of the greatest and most refined Christian intellectuals of the day submitted himself to the terrors and loneliness of that vast trackless solitude, becoming one of the most distinguished practitioners and guides of the early desert fathers. The Practicos and the Chapters on Prayer are two of Evagrius' best-known and influential works on the ascetic life. As a gifted writer and intellectual, Evagrius perfected the genre of desert sayings, those concise, gnomic, zen-like aphorisms. But make no mistake, his goal is always a deeply lived personal experience and not barren intellectual knowledge. Like many of the early Desert Fathers, he was a master at plumbing the depths of the human psyche based upon his own experiences in the desert. Special attention is given to one's thought life, the passions, dreams, memory, compulsions, and the ascetic goal of apathia, defined as inner solitude, tranquility, or a relatively permanent state of deep calm that arises from the full and harmonious integration of the emotional life under the influence of love. Evagrius calls apathia an imperturbable calm. It's a gift of healing from a God who wishes to confer greater favors than those you ask for. These two short treatises, about 30 pages each, were written for hermits. But the divine grace of human healing is a hope for every believer today. Take courage, writes Evagrius, and persevere in your holy prayer with all sails unfurled. 
Evagrius of Ponticus, the Practicos in Chapters on Prayer. For film this week, I review a documentary movie called Blue Gold, World Water Wars from the year 2009. This is a polemical but nevertheless powerful documentary about what might be the single most important issue of our day, water. Water management has always been a centerpiece for good or ill of civilizations. Consider the role of the Nile in ancient Egypt, Rome's aqueducts, or the fate of the Aral Sea under the Soviets. About 97% of the Earth's water is salt water, while the remaining 3% faces problems of politics, profiteering, and pollution, so that in many areas we're removing more water from the aquifers than is being replaced by nature's cycles. More people die every year from lack of clean water than from malaria, AIDS, and war. In in Africa, Coca-Cola's Dasani water can cost more than the cola. After considering the consequences of pollution, the latter half of the film explores a key controversy. Water is a basic human right and public resource for all, as opposed to a commodity that has been privatized for profit by multinational corporations in collusion with governments. Even in many American cities, water management has been outsourced to foreign multinational companies. This film is based upon the book from 2003 called Blue Gold, The Fight to Stop the Corporate Theft of the World's Water by Maud Barlow and Tony Clark. I highly recommend the film in conjunction with the similar documentary called Flow. The title of the film, Blue Gold, World Water Wars, from 2009. And finally, for poetry, we continue our series of poems by John Berryman, 1914-1972. Berryman wrote 11 Addresses to the Lord, and this week we've we've posted address number 7. After a stoic, a peripatetic... A, path, a Pythagorean, Justin Martyr studied the words of the Savior, finding them short, precise, terrible, and full of refreshment. I'm tickled to learn this. Let one day desolate Sherry, fair, thin, tall, at twenty-nine, today her life the Sahara Desert, who never has once enjoyed a significant relation, so too find his lightning words. Address to the Lord number seven by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 11th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.